Action Park Media. Just like music. All right, welcome to another episode of Victory the Podcast. I'm Doug Allen. And I am Kevin Connolly. We have a special episode of Victory the Podcast. Special guest, Doug, that you want to... Uh... I'll introduce him, but we are missing Kevin Dillon. Of course. He's, he's not a two-day-a-week guy. Yeah, we, if we're going to do two a week, Kevin Dillon cannot make it from Malibu, from Malibu twice a week. Because the traffic is just difficult. so terrible in the middle of the day. So to, maybe Jordan can get him a helicopter. Yeah, so to introduce our great, fascinating guest, Connolly and I both grew up on Long Island, New York, and we grew up with a lot of maniacs. Right. I mean, it's just that simple. And Jordan, uh, who's from Queens, correct? Yeah. Queens. So Jordan is from Queens. Jordan Belfort, Wolf of Wall Street, but is someone I know 20 years and grew up with one of his best friends. And anyway, welcome. You knew him pre-Wolf of Wall Street. I, you know what? The tragedy, Jordan, can tell you. <laughs> Jordan, and, I, and we're going to get into the fact that Jordan really is. Why is he a great salesman? He pushed that fucking movie through. And Jordan gave me the book. I'm not saying that, A, because Kali likes the Jordan. Kali Do likes, you think you could have done a better job than Scorsese? I definitely could not have. <laughs> and uh, you could not have done a better job than Leo. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> but Jordan gave me the book years before anyone had the book and i'm a i'm a dumb motherfucker because i could have maybe <laughs> given it to scorsese and said can i could i have some part of this can i just like, well you would have been an executive producer anything or something anything right. i would have been on the set at least anyway welcome jordan belfort hindsight's 2020 though right <laughs> you could say how many movies i think what rocky got passed on a hundred times right i mean it's just the way it is and i think that the things that you said, though, are true. I mean, like you looked at the book from one perspective, which is like, wow. Like, and at that moment, I believe it was pre-2008 that you saw it so early. It was before the financial meltdown. I think before that, I seemed like kind of like, oh, my God, he was such a terrible guy. And everyone's like, wait a second. <laughs> there was a lot worse going on than that. And it started to sort of all make sense in context. And at the same time, I think there's. Scorsese can get things pushed through, especially Leo and Scorsese, that would never have gotten produced by a big studio with all the cursing and the sex. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. I know you're interviewing me, but do you think that movie could get made today? Only with Leo and Scorsese. Right. It ain't getting made with Connolly and me. Let's right. put it that way. Well, well, also, too, Jordan, <laughs> that brings me to my, my most important question. I'm going to ask this question for Doug. Sure. <laughs> so, obviously, there's the PC culture and things, are, things have changed. I mean, that's common knowledge. I guess the question is for Doug, and I, 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 I think it's a fair question. With Leo and Scorsese, it's art, and then entourage is misogyny or whatever the word. So, is it... Is it Scorsese and Leo that Well, that I want to jump in before Jordan answers that. Good question. But I want to say, I saw Wolf of Wall Street with Jordan and with our mutual good friend who sadly has passed away, Barry. And I saw it probably seven months before it was released or right. whatever. And what I remember is because I was pushed to make the movie R. They wanted an R-rated comedy. That was the hot thing at the time. So, you know, I put a little things in. And I was feeling a little bit like, oh, I hope people don't think it's a little this, little that. And then I saw Wolf of Wall Street, which just so we're all clear, I love the movie. Absolutely love it. I wish I you could. You did love it. Love it. It was some of the funniest shit I've ever seen, which is what I did miss when I read the book. I grew up with all that stuff. I know how funny it was. I didn't think other people would think it was funny. Anyway, my point was, <laughs> I saw the movie. And I said, Entourage is fucking tame. Are you kidding me? But there is crossover, no matter what anyone says. So anyway, our guest will now speak. 
I'll speak. All right. There's a, there's a big difference I think you guys are missing here. The Wolf of Wall Street is a period piece. It takes place in the 80s and 90s. That's like saying you could look at Mad and say, how could you um, glamorize the abuse of women treating women like that and then objectifying them? But in the context of the 1950s, everyone could look back and say, oh, my God, wow. And it's more of a learning experience versus like when people look at an entourage, they'll say, mm, he and even though I know you're not like that, you respect women, you're not meant to glorify, you're just showing your and by the way, it is almost a period piece in some respect. It's pre probably pre me Too Hollywood. And I think, though, that Wolf gets somewhat of an exemption because it happened in uh, 25 years ago. So people can look back at it and feel safe that it's not happening right now and they can laugh and feel good about it. That's fair. Yeah. And again, for me, the PC bullshit is nonsense. The movie is what it is. And exactly. It's, and it's great. But what was shocking to me about the movie, which I, you know, Goodfellas was a classic morality tale. You do bad shit. You suffer bad consequences. Ultimately, you and your friends all end up dead or in jail. Wolf of Wall Street, what I thought the most genius thing about it was, is that it was speaking to what America is, that you can get away with all the excesses if you can live with yourself, and you can come back. And, Jordan, you've done that, which, you know, and I'm not comparing you to any of the stuff Henry Hill was doing in Goodfellas, of course. Right. But you've made this remarkable comeback and turned... You know, a lot of people have movies made about their lives and they don't end up branding themselves the way you have build a business and come back stronger than you ever were doing it legally now all. Um, So what was your like, what was your plan? Did you think when the movie was getting made that you started thinking about that design of? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good question. And I'd be lying to you to say that I had planned this whole thing out. Before it happened, you know, what happens, I think, as a business person, no matter what you're doing, it's branding yourself, whether it's just growing a business, start on an idea, you're, you're constantly reacting to what's happening around you and pivoting and trying something again and not being let down or set back or becoming uh, negative when things don't work out. Because I think you can look at where I am now and it, it all looks really good. But if you go back to the beginning, you know, when I first released the book and then all these things that I had to do along the way, like for example, when the book first came out, there was no redemption story yet. It was just the book and it was this wild thing. And a lot of journalists would trash me and every single article was just negative and rightfully so. But like I had to take it on the chin. And even even though in my heart, I'm like, but I'm out there doing the right thing right now. I'm I'm training people. I'm empowering people. I'm, I'm a nice. And but you know what? People saying prove it. Well, it's been now 13 years. And in those 13 years, I've helped millions of people. And I think people have finally over the last four or five said, wow, I guess if that's just like, you know, 10 years straight, I guess that's what he is now. And eventually the story changes. But you need to have a very thick skin, as you all know, in the process, because there are some really vicious not just journalists out there, but people online. And no matter what you do, if you were Jesus Christ and they said, I'm not saying I am, but they, and you gave the sermon on the Temple Mount, they'd say, oh, what an idiot, what a loser that is. Like, that, there's nothing new there. Like, it's a bad speech. A, 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 a <laughs> bad terrible speech, speech right? No, so, so, who wants to hear from him? So, this, I think what you need to do in terms of, you know, branding yourself and just coming back from failure or just coming back from just the pandemic is that you can't 
ever accept the way things are as the status quo. You can't ever rest on your laurels. It's constantly looking around you and saying, how do I make the most out of the opportunities as they are today without whining or crying about how I wish it was different? That's yeah. the big one. And I think that's what I saw from you from the beginning. You had, and and listen, my I'm like most people. Salesmen, as a rule, kind of you go, fuck it, hey, leave me alone, get right. away from me, this and that. You were always persuasive in a way that made me listen to what you said obviously no but still <laughs> but still what i what i was bringing this to is Connolly's a tough sell so i remember when you were on the <laughs> jordan was on the entourage set and he's got the book and he's trying to attach leo who i don't i i, I need to remember did leo read the script he was attached point? but he like but again he was attached but he was attached to how he's many attached things to, he's attached a, a, to eight thousand things, things. Right. right yeah yeah so Connolly's best friends with leo jordan jordan is gonna sell and he's gonna get scorsese and leo and i believe that was a big part of it i do i believe the fact of course if jordan just wrote the book and threw it out there that movie's not getting made like that jordan had a big hand so what happens you come onto the set you're like you know connolly's <laughs> got I this tell, yeah, let yeah. me tell the story so a lot you know for people listening out there by the end season seven eight of entourage was like doing live television yeah between takes everybody's there's a million there, there was i mean there was just rows i would rows. bring a lot of friends you, there. but but not just you but a lot right. of people were there it was big it was a fun set to visit so people were there so jordan is probably two or three rows behind me and i was looking at something in the monitor whatever we're going over something i was directing the episode <laughs> so i was looking at something at playback and jordan is very sitting there minding his own business a couple rows back and he's like hey kevin so you think leo's gonna do my movie <laughs> And I just said, probably not. <laughs> now, the reason I said that wasn't because of the Wolf of Wall Street or the book or the subject matter. The the statistic probability, probability is so of getting Leo and Scorsese on a movie set to do a hundred million dollar movie that nobody wants to make. It's just near and, impossible. And that so is it wasn't a reflection on Jordan. Of it was course a reflection not. on it's just a needle and, in a haystack. And my point, the reflection on Jordan that I see is where that, if it was me, that might have just shot me down and be like, oh, Jordan used it and went, I'm moving forward and nobody's stopping me. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, I have to say a couple things. Number one, Leo was the one that drove this project forward. Seriously, Leo. Leo read this, loved it, was attached to it, and he said to me from the very beginning, I want you to know that this is not the typical project I attached to. It's my passion project. We're going to get this made. Have faith in me. And he kept his word to me the entire time. In addition to that, there was other people. I know Rick Yorn's a controversial character and people like, you know, could hate him or love him. But Rick Yorn also worked really, really hard. And in the end, pulled through. I had my own manager, Scott Lambert. I had Alexandra Milshan. I had those people around me. Everybody that you just mentioned are some serious fucking heavy hitters. These are the, right. These people are really <laughs> it doesn't get done. any heavier than that. And, and the point is they all, we had our battles along the way, Rick and I, but at the end of the day, you know, they all came through and my role in it was just basically to A, not screw up my life in the process, by the way. Right. And also one thing that was crucial is I actually made the movie a better movie by coming back from what had happened. So by the time the movie get made, it gave Marty and Terry Winter and Leo the ability to rewrite the last act because the movie originally ended with me in jail. It didn't have a redemption. No. It was, I went to jail. And then over that six or seven year lag until the Which movie Which is crazy. Made, so just so people right. are listening, you're a filmmaker out there. This is Leo and Scorsese. And it, it took six years with right. 
the two of unquestionably the biggest in the business, maybe ever. Take six or seven it's years to get a movie made. difficult. And it was mostly Scorsese because it just takes him longer. He can't move from project to project. Like Leo can, is an actor. He, he does something and I guess he could do two a year like if he wanted to. But Marty will live with it for like it's a two or three year thing, right? Big difference. Also, too, I mean, it's a six month prep. It's exactly. a four month shoot. And then a year of you can uh, as a director on that level, you can only do one movie every couple years. Exactly. So so what happened was is I had this ma- major comeback and built a business without the movie. And then Leo called me. He was, hey, we're ready to make the movie. And he came to my house. He's like, wait a second. You're living in a huge house in the water. He goes, what <laughs> happened? And I'm like, oh, I'm just, you know, out there in this. I give, go around the world to give speeches. I train people. He's like, show me. I showed him a video. He's like, oh, my God. Wait till Marty sees this. He's wow. going to go crazy. So he sent it to Marty, who fell in love with the whole idea. They rewrote the third act, Terry did with as well. And it just, they made it a much better movie. Because as you said, I think what people really like about it is that, you know, it's this sort of comeback story. It Also, it rings true. True in the sense that, for example, I, they were looking for an ending to the movie, like an actual ending, the last scene. And I was like, well, you know, at the time I was doing some charity work in Africa. I said, how about if it's I'm doing charity work? He goes, really? (laughs) (laughs) Is that really the wolf of Wall Street with people? The truth is the wolf is still selling and he teaches others now, but he does it the right way. That's the that's truly what America is. And I think that's why when people look at it, also in Scorsese's genius is that he doesn't moralize when he makes a movie. Like he puts characters on a screen and doesn't tell you how you should feel. They could have me murdering a small cat. And like, up, oh, you hate the guy. So, so you could do things in a movie that instantly make you hate a character or love a character. So Marty has a way of doing it where it's just like you put it up there as real life is. It rings true. And people judge based on their own beliefs and experiences. That's why I think people love the movie. So how much interaction, because, you know, we had Scorsese, obviously, was on Entourage. I thought which... you were going to say we had Scorsese on the podcast. I was going to go, well, Doug, am I supposed to play along with you on this well, one? <laughs> we're going we're gonna to do what, what Jordan did to you. Jordan, uh, you think we'll get Scorsese on the podcast? Yeah. yeah probably know. not. Tough but, one. It's a tough but one. But so, you know, obviously, when Scorsese was on the show, this is this is my fucking hero. I'm, right. I mean, this is a guy I fucking idolize. Every single one of his movies I've seen a dozen times. I'm not joking, including Silence, including everything. So, including Silence. I, I did, and I loved it, by the way. I swear to God, I loved it. So my point was, though, when he came on, it was intimidating. It was that presence. I didn't want to bother him, even though he was working for me for a minute. Nicest guy ever, right? How he he couldn't have been nicer. My point was, how much interaction did you have with him? One and two, was he going? I see this as a comedy. Okay, so great question. My interactions with Scorsese were limited for this particular reason. We early on we spoke, and he's like, "Listen, get this. I love this story. You need to trust me with the character that I think people want to see and what this needs to be." And if I try to get you involved in every scene and you're advising me, the idealized version that I have is going to get confused with what you think it should be. So you need to trust me and let me be clear. And that made perfect sense to me. So I literally backed off and and Leo and I worked together almost daily. So I was like sort of constantly helping with Leo. We were going through literally every word, every line in the script, trying to make it more authentic and better. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. Terry just 
knocked it out of the park, but just, you know, just that little last bit. And he was the liaison to Scorsese. And then I did go on the set. I met Marty. He could not have been nicer and more generous. And listen, what can I say? I mean, they, they made a movie that in some way is a commercial for my business ended with me on stage in an iconic scene with Sell Me This Pen. So I was very fortunate and smart to have trusted Scorsese to, with my life story. You know, it's funny. There's the famous story about Bradley Cooper with American Sniper. Um, I believe the guy was uh, Chris Kyle or I'm yeah. butchering his name the, the sniper they this guy and Bradley Cooper were out trying to make that movie for a while and they couldn't get the movie made until he got killed yeah. by a rogue right. veteran at a, at and a, then at a gun a, range at a gun range but on a much darker you know obviously a much darker example okay and that's now we have an ending to our movie whereas obviously wolf wall street was a little more uplifting but american sniper who clint eastwood i mean not oscars around the horn couldn't get made until he got killed. it always causes you know it, it's always a difficult journey yeah. give you a perfect entourage example here it's the same way that vince did not want anyone to see the cut of the movie that he made he was scared <laughs> until it was absolutely perfect and he ran away did it right yeah. what was the movie get um hide 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 right so you didn't want anyone but was, no but the point is is like i was laughing my ass off because like in some of like marty was like just like like is as amazing as he is i'm probably as insecure as he is as a director yeah because everyone he's so you know he's so conscious of his art and he wants it to be perfect so the idea that the real person is saying no it's not that way it would have driven him up the wall right. even the thought of having me there looking at saying with narrowed eyes. So I totally got that. And, but I never felt like for a second that I wasn't intimately involved because I would every day, Leo and I were, were constantly working on Well, that, that was thing. the other thing I want to talk about because when I saw the movie with you, and I know Leo a little bit, he likes to call me the fucking producer all the time when uh, I see him with Conley, but I was blown away. He, he was you. And while it seems like, okay, so he's just playing this kind of Queens guy. He really was walking like you, carrying himself like you. Did he discuss that with you or he just observed you? No, no. We went through things in a very formulaic way and observational. But I'll tell you something really funny. So recently, in the last few days, I released a video that was a funny mashup of the movie and me doing a scene that I actually had done in real life. And I, I think you guys probably saw that. I saw it. it and it awesome. was really funny. And half of the, and Leo Colby goes, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. And like, there's two sides of comments we're getting. Both of us. What? Wow. You do the best to me. You, you're the best lead on a DiCaprio imitation ever. And oh my God, how talented is Leo that he was able to get you like that. So for me, I'll just tell you flat out, I'm the worst actor in the world. That was not me acting. That was me being me. It was really easy for me to do that scene because it was me, right? People say, well, you weren't as good as Leo. Well, number one, I, I, that was one take. But also, by the way, Leo is like the world's greatest actor, right, basically. Right. So like, but, and, you know, and I think also I was, pr I was actually pretty proud that I was able to recreate the energy in the moment. It's really weird. You're looking into a, a camera and I was in my bathroom, by the way, it was a ba in my bathroom in front of a white shade. And the guy who works for me, the video guy, just did a really good job intercutting it with the movie. And, um, but it's really funny. People said, wow, you do a great DiCaprio imitation. <laughs> well, ch check this video out on, on Jordan's uh, Instagram. It's great. But I think you got the acting bug. And the thing is, <laughs> uh -oh. listen, from me knowing you and growing up with you and the same thing, I'll, I'll say Goodfellas, Gangsters, Salesmen, 
They're the funniest people in the world. We know that. And that's why, to me, comedy influences me. And ever, no one really understands this when I say Goodfellas was like a comedy influence on me. Sopranos has some of the funniest shit I've ever seen in my life. At Raging Bull, even. And Wolf of Wall Street, it really, I don't think I've laughed that hard well, in my life. Well, Doug, you and I were t- we talked about the, the Quaalude scene is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in any movie anywhere. Because yeah. it's this h- hard R but it was like bridesmaids funny. Yeah. I, I mean, I laugh out loud. Yeah. I want to tell you guys something. Someone called me up the other day saying they had 10 real quaaludes. <laughs> and they said they were in the bottle still. And they're What's like, that do you, uh, so they said, do you want to buy them? Do you want to buy them? I'm like, yeah. I mean, like, so like, just to have how much. Them. I said 500. I'll take them all. Right. And I haven't seen them yet. But and they're, they're swearing. So I doubt it. So you'll know, know this. So. Barry Gessler is Jordan and I's mutual uh, friend, one of my best friends who passed away. He's as crazy as Jordan. And he's the guy you guys know each other through yes. Barry, who's yes, passed away. correct. So Barry was my neighbor. But I anyway, loved Barry. Just a quick Kevin Conley story. This is how crazy Barry was and really was one of the role models for Vince when I started the show. But Conley came over to Barry's house one day and just said, hey, uh, Barry, uh, I, that Bentley. No, I said, that's my ultimate one day. That's like the car. That's my dream car. The, a Bentley. That car. It's a, the, the, the hatchback, yeah. But Connolly goes, would I look like a jerk off driving around in this car? And Barry goes, why don't you just take it and see? He did, they just <laughs> met and you had it for months. Yeah, I mean, I, I, was, I, well, I felt uncomfortable taking a, <laughs> driving out of there in a Bentley. It was weird because yeah. you picked me up. And like an hour later, there I am on Sunset Boulevard driving this Bentley. And then eventually I said, yeah, I, I do look, look like you're a taking- jerk off. <laughs> I do look like a jerk off. And then I called Doug. I'm like, Doug, you got to tell Barry I got to give him this call. <laughs> Which so Barry funny. would be insulted He gave me a Bentley. I know. That's so, Barry. So, but the, so just getting back to that Quayley thing. So about three years ago, I can't mention any names, but a big manager in Hollywood, whose wife I know, calls me up and says, I have a billionaire friend in Chicago. They made new Quayleys. <laughs> so I call Barry. This is five years ago. I go, Barry. You're not going to believe this. He said no way, right? No, Barry goes, I want 10,000. Okay. We, <laughs> the next thing I know, we're driving to Malibu, which, which Kevin Dillon, I, we got there quickly. Yeah. We got there quickly. Took Kevin. you 20 minutes. We go to Malibu and this woman is giving, the, we're basically making a drug deal and her husband comes. No, you're not basically making a drug deal. Yeah, yeah, we're making you're a drug deal. Making a you're drug making drug. a drug deal. We're yeah. making a drug deal. So we, we. Her husband comes down. He fucking freaks out. I mean, he's like, can't believe his wife is doing this. We walk out with like a bag full of pills. We get, Jesus. we get, uh, we go to Montana. Actually, we take them. Took them across state lines. They were yeah. fucking <laughs> horse tranquilizers. We were out cold. So, but the stories that I heard, and I had one night on Quaaludes in my life before they were outlawed, and it was the greatest drug. If you did it normally, if you drank. And did Quaaludes, everybody knew what could happen. So, Jordan, why were you doing that? Quaaludes and alcohol as a mixture is mm. is a, is a recipe dangerous. for black. Oh, life. Kathleen Ann Quinlan, remember her from uh, the uh, 70s who blacked out and died on the Quaaludes? Yep. Um, why was I doing Quaaludes? Well, and drinking. Well, I wasn't a huge drinker, to tell you the truth. It was really, it was a mild drinker. We would use alcohol, typically hot sake, to, as an accelerant, like, you know, to dissolve the pills. It's like gasoline in a raging fire sort of thing. Right, made like sense it. at the time, right? Um, you know, I always see like on these pills you get from the drugstore, say, you know, alcohol will intensify this effect. I'm like, ah, so that means to drink heavily, basically, <laughs> right, right? Right, yeah. So, um, Quaaludes were fucking awesome, they were just like so it's hard to explain because all the kids they have different stuff now. It's it was this incredibly clean, euphoric high, um, that 
as you pointed out, had little consequence until you went over the line, and then there was massive consequences. So, I feel so left out. I, <laughs> I know it was a, it was an amazing. I remember it was so prevalent that it was probably the single most abused prescription drug in terms of the ratio of real prescriptions to phony. Like with the opioid crisis. There are legitimate uses for opioids. There are. I mean, this is not them. for quaaludes. There's not. No, there's like, there's no fucking no use. There's like no use for a quaalude other than to get high with, basically. Right. The worst sleeping pill. They just like, they made you feel great, you know? Well, let me, let me ask you this. What were they, was it socially, for example, you know, nowadays anybody can smoke weed wherever you want. Edibles. Doug has uh, got a horrible edible problem. Every, <laughs> all day long he's stoned. It's socially acceptable where... You know, if uh, all of a sudden Doug left the studio and like was in the bathroom snorting cocaine, I'd be like, dude, what the <laughs> fuck is wrong with Doug? Was were quaaludes socially acceptable, or was it like this guy's out of his mind on quaaludes? It was the la- It was still the latter because quaaludes. So people like snorting coke in the bathroom in the eighties was socially acceptable. <laughs> right. By the way, that was. Quaaludes were a nighttime drug. They were not a daytime drug. At least they were not supposed to be because you'd get sloppy. It was part of the fun. You'd get a bit sloppy. Even if you didn't go over the line, you'd still be a little bit like a loo there, rounding out your vowels. So I guess some weird, that sounded weird. What do you say? Exactly. <laughs> right. So like, there was this unbelievable experience that we all would get. Every drug addict has had this where you get to this perfect state of toxic poise where you're like you have the right mixture of drugs in your system it's like right ups and downs it's so fleeting so hard to get to the problem is once you get it you spend that best <laughs> 10 years chasing that moment again and you can never really which you don't even it, know, you know if it was real anyway but well, it was mostly imagined but like the point is is that you would like take loose and get this this hard to explain euphoria that would be like 15 to 30 minutes long and then you would try to Keep that going by popping a second one. Smoke and a little on. weed, maybe do a shot. Maybe, and and yeah. I can explain a quaalude, one quaalude on its own is very simply like, to me, it was drinking a dozen beers yes. with no side effects. Correct. Wow. Life was great. Yeah. Everybody looked better. You felt good about yourself. And it was if you could not cross that line where you wreck I gotta a Ferrari. Hands, I got to get my hands on some You'll never get them. <laughs> and also, though, you know, as you, as you learned the hard way with these bootlegs, as we called them, they're all different types of quaaludes. You might have the right quaalude mixture, which is methaqualone, but it's how it was buffered, how it's released into your system. There were different brands. Some brands would make you really sleepy and other brands would give you that euphoric feeling. And of all the different brands, it was like the lemons that got it best. They got oh, it that's, right. That's what it was called, the lemons? Lemons, so 7 if, 14. if you were like, I got quails, I got lemons. It was like game <laughs> Lemons on. and Roras were the two top ones. Then you had others that were heavier, like you had Methacetals, and you had Paladin Burmas and Toquilones and all these different brands from different around the world. And they were sometimes even mixed with things like uh, Diphenhydramine, which is uh, the stuff that you find in uh, sleeping pills. It's like Benadryl, basically, right? right? And mix it with that stuff. That's terrible. That would make you more sloppy and tired. But when you got it right, it was amazing. Thank God they're illegal. I mean, yeah. thank God they're so not. So it's around. better that it's illegal. Oh my God! They yeah. should the whole be world would be fun. The whole it's better for everyone. I'm so happy I can't get one. Like right. I don't want one. I, I I want one if you have. By one. the way, Jordan right. says he, he doesn't have one. But again, Barry who passed away and Jordan. If you if Barry was here and Jordan was here and you told him you can get quail, he'd give you a hundred thousand. Exactly. Yeah. Like, well, just to have them, right? Yeah. They're, they're no, 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 no. I had to take, to take them. them. <laughs> the first thing I would do is I would go to the bathroom and stick my finger down my throat to throw. Up every <laughs> bit of food in my in my you know upper GI. Then I might even take an enema to get rid of the lower GI. I want to be perfectly fuck 
I want to be clean. I want to be a pristine condition, like a baby's stomach. <laughs> and I want to just accept the quaalude on perfectly clean intestinal tract. Take it. I wait about six and a half minutes, then take a shot of hot sake and just sit back <laughs> and wait and, and then is pray. Is that, that the process? Yeah, basically. If I felt like I really wanted to get things going, I might jump on a treadmill or a Stairmaster or like, you get know, the lift. heart rate going. Yeah, I could do that too as well. But these so were really guys, the excess was so insane. And I've told you some of the stories about Barry, you know, but now you're, it's 2021. <laughs> You're supposed to be normal and you've grown up. And I mean, how do you look back on that time? And what I wanted to talk about now, because everything that's going on on Wall Street right now is pretty insane. Um, weirdly enough, we have a mutual friend who was kind of at the center of this whole GameStop situation. But w- how do you view this? And how do you view what I wanted to talk to you about? Because I think some of the shit the hedge funds do is so much worse than some of the things that oh, you yeah. went to jail for. Yeah, sure. So like without naming any names, you know, there's, you know, well, I could talk about Barry, you know, ba- Barry, a lot of the sh- type of shit shorting that Barry did was not, you know, was that really ruthless type of shorting. The problem with shorting and what you saw happen with GameStop is it's not enough for a short seller to find the stock, analyze it, realize it's wildly overvalued and short it and wait. That doesn't work because it's very expensive to stay short. Unlike when you buy stock, there's no real cost to capital, so to speak. And just so everyone knows, when you short a stock, you're you're betting it's going down. So, so if you, if you're, Short, that means you sold something you don't own, so you have to borrow it. People charge you a fee to borrow their stock. So every day that you're short, it's ticking up. The interest is ticking up and ticking up. So what happens is large hedge funds, what would you do if you got short of stock? Hmm, what can I do to precipitate the downward move? Well, there are things they could do, like let me call up some friendly journalists and get some really bad articles written about this company, even if the information is true, but they're getting that information out into the public. Some would say that's a public benefit. I strongly doubt that. Other things they'll do is they'll try to get the regulators to start invest. They'll say there's a fraud going on. Maybe there is. And they'll get the, invest, the, uh, the regulators to investigate because they need something to happen to drive down the stock. They might even call their other friends who short and say, hey, check this out. Let's, you know, this is a piece of shit. Let's all get behind this. So in the same way, the little guys who are doing that, that's what the big guys do. And that's why the system is so fucked. I yeah. mean, I, I, when the pandemic started, Bill Ackman, who's a fucking multi-billionaire. I remember that one. Got on CNBC and basically cried and convinced panic neurotic Jews like myself that the world economy was basically over and you better I don't even know what he wanted us to do but basically get gold bars and fucking hide in the cave <laughs> but he at the same time was shorting the market and made a fortune and CNBC basically does advertisements for him it's like yeah. come on you're a genius and and tell everybody basically what you want to hear so where do you stand on a I know you're a big guy who's against regulation but what do you think is it just people are responsible you do your own homework or what well there's a couple of things number one the SEC is not there to protect the small investor they're just not they're there to protect the big institutions. And if you go back to the beginning of the SEC, its first leader was Joseph Kennedy, who shorted the market down and caused, was one of the people responsible for the market crashing in 29. And that culture at the SEC, I don't care what they say, they are not out to protect the little investor. And even if they do sometimes, it's only for the sake of just appearances. There's things they could do that could stop this from happening. They really want to. They could stop this shit cold. They really could. Now, that being said, 
remember, you know, there's also a fine line. Shorting is a regular, normal, healthy part of the market. So it's not about coming in with a samurai sword and just, you know, carving everything up. You know, brokerage firms are an integral part of the world economy and they're needed for the movement of money, the application of capital and for companies to have access to capital. And so they do serve a purpose. The problem is, is there is Warren Buffett's and then there's people who are very much the opposite on those big hedge funds and they're slashing and burning. And shockingly in the last five years, you know, you saw one major, I don't know, name a name, but one guy who was like, just compared to what I did, this person did a million Times worse, didn't he got off? We paid fines, paid some fines, yeah. and got. I was I mean, like, talk about Steve here. I, I don't even name a name here because I have nothing against the guy. He's probably a really nice guy. He's probably a nice guy, yeah. by the way. Okay, so it's not that. Just that he knew the game and was it whoever, whoever he was. He knew the, the but the, the amount of raping and pillaging and insider trading. I knew this from Barry because Barry was involved. Is because the level of corruption was so insane at the hedge fund level. It was ba- the whole hedge fund business was based on having these internal analysts and special information trying to get that edge in the market and they were exploiting all these semi-legal loopholes that all, that on a daily basis they were crossing the line at the end nothing happened to them even worse i would say is the big short the, i still can't believe at the end of the movie when they have that classic scene and everybody all the bad guys they all went to jail haha <laughs> just kidding no you remember that scene yes. and when everyone looked at oh, it's funny yeah they, but in our stomachs i mean the average person that's not fair. Like, you know, so, so that's the issue. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand when they see these guys who get off because they pay $250, $500 million in fines. It's $10. They, it's not, it's $5. I was going to say, it's not much. And right? they've also done things that have damaged so many more people than the, the little drug dealer who's doing 20 years in jail or Jordan. Again, you didn't do great shit. Okay, it we, wasn't we, nearly on no. the level that these people do on right. a daily basis. Right. So listen, how about the, listen, Goldman Sachs? They financed the whole Jolo thing, right? So Jolo, explain <laughs> that who who ended up financing Wolf, the Wolf, Wolf of Wall, Wall Street, Street would not exist without this this happening. Correct? And I heard that the guys at Goldman they really got hit hard. They reduced his the CEO's explain bonus. Explain who Jolo by, is though. So Jolo, if Leo, we had a number of people try, that well, wanted to finance the movie. Leo found a group out of Malaysia. He had no, Leo had no idea they were illegitimate. How would he possibly? So it's not Leo's fault. They're right? a group out of Malaysia, right. but they're a group that were. In L.A. and in New York and everywhere, well, everywhere. You, everywhere you turned, they so were there. Leo met these guys, right? And Leo, what would Leo know? Is that his fault? So they turned out that they basically had stolen every dollar directly from the treasury of Malaysia, three billion some odd dollars, and they used some of that money to finance the Wolf of Wall Street. They also donated a bunch of money to the Obama campaign. I mean, it, they just right. spread out this money on super high levels. They just Paris Hilton took the they, sham- they also used it on a lot of hookers, yeah, a lot yeah, of drugs. Paris Hilton took a seven. Right, didn't Paris Hilton get a seven million dollars champagne bathroom? Jolo, I, I think she. I think she got uh, you know ten, twelve, fifteen yeah. million dollars personally for him. <laughs> and by the way. Just I, Jordan, I want you to keep going. But this guy, Jordan, spent seven years more in jail than he has. He hasn't spent a day in jail, right? Or, or Reza got off. Okay, the other the, the Jolo's counterpart, Reza. Anyway, long story short, all right. What you have is basically a situation like that, right? Where these guys come in, they steal billions. Where did that money come from? How was it allowed to happen? Goldman Sachs. Goldman, Goldman Sachs literally created and. 
dealt as a facade and intermediary that allowed them to get away with that. And if you look behind pretty much all the massive crimes out there on Wall Street, Goldman has a finger in them. Now, I'm not saying that Goldman is a criminal institution. I'm not saying that because they're not. They do a lot of amazing things, too. But they are in, they are. There is a part of Goldman that's fucking evil. All right. And so but and, and it keeps going and going and going because it is an incestuous relationship between Goldman and the government. All the former treasure secretaries come there, just swapping in and out. And now it's pretty, pretty interesting. It's now starting to be like from big tech and the government. It's now a new thing. And they swap back and forth, creating rules that allow them to keep doing what they're doing now. Moral of the story, Goldman, is what happened to Goldman because well, they got sued, investigated, fined, embarrassed. And I read an article. They reduced the CEO's pay by $10 million this year. Yeah. That guy, that the impact on that man is literally zero. To me, the whole tragedy of the system when people talk about what's fair and unfair. The little guy, you got Goldman Sachs. They are able to hire the smartest people in the world, the smartest computer programmers, the smartest stock analysts, and they figure out everything they're doing is a way to get an edge, which is what anyone is supposed to Nothing do in their that. business. That's what you're supposed to do. But the little guy who's out there, which was why people were so happy that they sort of crushed it for a minute in GameStop, which well, sadly I, I, now I, we're going to find a lot of people probably got killed. Well, I was, bet, I was you know, trying to give them as much positive encouragement, warning them at the same time, because that, that was obvious that anything that goes up like that with a short squeeze and the value is much, much lower. So one thing about your friend who was um, a big short seller is they're usually right. They're usually right. When, they, they, when they're that short a stock, they've done deep research and they are typically not going to risk the amount of money that they risk unless they're pretty much sure that the stock is massively overvalued. That being said, once in a blue moon, they're wrong, but that's not even the bigger problem. The problem is timing. Once they get short, they have the stock's got to drop quickly or else it gets too expensive. That's where the problem starts. And that's, and that's where any capitalist system is. People are going to try to figure out their way of money. So to, to bring the audience up to speed, mutual friend of Jordan and Doug's and mine now, I've known him a long time through Doug. He's a short seller, but he writes about it, whether it's a blog or whatever it is. And he's good. And people, he says something, he moves the needle. Yeah. I mean, listen, he's a brilliant writer and he's a brilliant analyst. And the thing now is, though, you know, it used to be, Jordan, 20 years ago, short sellers, they really didn't speak about it. It was kind of like you kept quiet and you didn't do it. But now it's like you say, the networks give this forum where you can get that word out, where some people find that obnoxious or awful. But, you know, there is a very valid purpose to it because there are a lot of frauds out there. There are a lot of fake shit going on the other side. So. And, and just overvalued companies that need to, that, that should have both sides right. played. Right, but if somebody, if I had this company and uh, some guy wrote an article, all of a sudden my stock dropped, I would imagine that that could be a dangerous line of work, yeah? You'd, sure. So, so people no, get pissed. No doubt. So People think, get pissed, yeah. I think, and listen, another aspect of this is that, you know, you have certain companies like Tesla that was shorted heavily. It's a great company, and he was able to fight back because he's Elon Musk. A lot of companies end up getting severely damaged. By short sellers. Yes, because what happens is once the stock starts to drop like that, it 
cuts off their access to capital. They can no longer raise money. Or if they do, it's way too expensive because the stock is so cheap. They make people think that, you know, the company is not even credit worthy anymore, so they can't get loans. So, so, so very... some of it becomes self-fulfilling. And exactly. Jordan, we're going to have to bring you in because Connolly, he may have some money that wants to come into Action <laughs> Park Media. Yeah. And just imagine, though, Connolly, someone starts writing that you well, suck at what you do. This and... is going to be, this is going to, was going to be my point. So you're a friend that writes these articles, right? So is it's First Amendment. He can write whatever he wants. Maybe it's dangerous. Maybe it's not. And again, just asking, I don't know, masking. Somebody writes, I hate the Entourage movie. It's garbage. You're short selling our movie. A lot of people wrote that. You're short selling our movie. Is 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 somebody that writes uh, an article no. or a view on that any different than no. somebody that shorts a stock? No. Well, the question, what the question really is, though, is, okay, who wrote the article and what do they stand to gain financially by your movie tanking? That's the difference. If they don't have a financial interest, let's say it was a movie that was coming out at the same time of yours and they sabotage you, you'd probably have the right to sue that person because they're not, they're a biased person acting as an unbiased person and they're slamming you because they're making money on the other side of that. In the case of just a review who thinks it sucks, well, what are you going to say? Everyone's entitled to their opinion. So there's a very big difference with someone who's like some skin in the game. So if they have skin in the game, there's money to be made. That's different. Exactly. Like for example, with, with I went out and did this video on um, supporting the short sellers, and not even just like encouragement. I did not own a share either way yeah. because if I did, it could be construed as I was trying to drive it back up trading. or down. Yeah, exactly. So, no, but it's not insider trading. You're allowed to do it. I'm allowed to, but I didn't even do. I would never have done it because of the inference and the, the appearance, and then you create problems for yourself. So I think that there's something to be said that if you're really long a short of stock and you write about it, it's you know. It's questionable. To me, where the problem lies, and I don't have any solution to it, and then we'll get off of this complicated conversation that's probably better for it's a Wall Street show. But, yeah. but the, the thing that, that bothers me is, is the networks. They let people come on, and they build them up as these geniuses. And if you're just a regular guy sitting at home, you start to listen to those people, and you can get hurt. So the, I, the message Doug, is- The guy you were talking about on CNBC, he rattled me, and I don't know anything. Oh, well, Bill Ackman. Yeah, Bill Ackman. Yeah. I oh, was yeah, like, what the did. fuck? That made the rounds. I was going, what but the again, fuck, But again, you man? could you could judge that as his opinion or you could judge it as manipulation, whatever it is. But anyway, so with the limited time we have, we'll get back to like conversations because part of it all comes back to the same thing. Where I grew up, middle class, working class neighborhood where people wanted to make something of themselves, were fighting for money. And how easy was it? Because basically the way I grew up, the way the entourage guys grew up and the way you grew up is the same. Right. How easy would it have been for them to follow uh, Turtle E and uh, Drama to follow Jordan Belfort into Stratton Oakmont and go work there as opposed to following a, a great actor to Hollywood? They did. That's very it's very similar. Like that group was my group who's from the same areas, same lack of education for most of them, the same aspirations to make it big. And they really were very representative of the typical Stratton broker. Yeah. yeah. And it's sure. like, it's, it's like, how easy is it to get caught up in that? You're 20 years old. You had no money. Your parents had no money. And all of a sudden you're making this thing, which the rules are skewed against this guy. Well, it's even more than that. There's only one scene in the Wolf of Wall Street that I would really wish they wouldn't have put in there because it just it, it gives the wrong impression. When I first went down to that small firm and I walk in the door, it's Leo playing me. And he says, is this, this stuff legal? Is this regulated? <laughs> and the guy says, well, no. Nah. Let me happen. tell you, it, I asked that question. And you know what the guy said to me? 
Of course it is. <laughs> what do you mean? Look, we have an, we're members of the NASD. The stocks trade on the exchange. Of course it's legal. If that guy would have said to me, yeah. I would have I ran out the door. So the problem is for a lot of people is they walk into a place and it looks okay. And they're saying, all right, well, people may, I guess, what's wrong? No, they're not going to say, hey, just so you know, we're breaking the law here. And, and you know, and so, you know, you, I want you to help us break. They're like, no, oh, this is great. We're helping people. So you got to be really careful because it could have been a great learning moment for people to see that you don't really know. You have to dig deeper. And sometimes, and I won't deny that once I got in there, then I started saying, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> So who who do you think out of the entourage guys would have been the best guy, best broker? Who's the sell? Oh, E for fucking yeah, uh, <laughs> a thousand percent. Come on, Turtle. Turtle's a great. Turtle's a great. Are you no, kidding? E, Turtle honestly, stocks. He was an animal stockbroker. Turtle would have been okay, by the way. At the especially at the end, like this Turtle is fat Turtle or thin Turtle. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, turtle, turtle had the biggest metamorphosis of any character. It was it's like each you're watching him like the, the the pounds melt off every single season as he gets richer. It's like I guess you're gonna be too rich or too thin, right? Turtle, <laughs> right? But you know, by the way, even drama would have been a fucking. Fun. I, mean, they all, I mean, all of the guys except for Vince, too lazy. Right, right. <laughs> so, Jordan, you were a fan when the show was on. Were you watching? I I've watched every episode at least ten times. That's I know nice. every single, almost every line from every episode. My favorite is only, but there's only one thing that is my favorite above all. There was an episode, is an early, one of the first episodes, maybe even the first. It was, a great, it was I think Turtle who said it. She's top tall. <laughs> I, that to, to me was the funniest Earth cafe it's sick that i remember Earth that cafe, cafe and he's like ah, she's top it's just the funniest thing because like a i'd never heard it before and it was like i just literally it struck me as being so funny coming from turtle especially and it was right. so ironic and that was like it was so layered the humor because like you're saying that she's not right because she's like did you look in the mirror leggy but then there's some truth to that because a lot of guys like leggy it's really just it was it, i think the writing I'm not just saying better this. than the acting. I'm yeah. not, I'm not just saying, yeah, they're right. No, in all seriousness, it, to me, that series was just like one of the best of all time. And it became, and it's also one of those series that held up as the seasons kept going. It just like, it became like pop cultural. All the famous people just wanted to come on the freaking set. It's like, I wish I would have been more famous back then. I would have been on the set. <laughs> oh, I would have been, been a story. I, I, I know, I know. Sure. But I was just making my comeback. It was a bit early. I would have been Gatsby. We would have been playing Gatsby. And, and, it would been Gatsby and Vince, right? Instead of Wolf of Wall Street. But... <laughs> Turtle would have left Vince to go work I know. for Wolf of Wall Street. It's like, I got a great opportunity. <laughs> way, that would have been a great. Yeah. I know. It's a little too early. But I, I really enjoy. I tell you what, I enjoyed that. And there was so many people. Different time, by the way. When people used to get things each week and they talk right. about it the water cooler right Isn't literally it? water cooler talk yeah. yeah well you couldn't binge it right so it was 30 minutes and then right. you had to wait but you know what it was and when i look back at it when i hang out with you it's like just me hanging out with kevin and jordan is the same thing as all my high school boys of course we have differences but it right. just is that camaraderie which the show was that's why yeah it was before the me too movement but it's irrelevant because it wasn't about that it was about friendship loyalty and lifelong things that lasted doug you mentioned this about maya last time we we spoke but my daughter yeah, this, it's now like this new generation of people are like discovering the show. And I don't know if that's the pandemic or whatever it is, but, you know, I have an eight, I have an 18, 19 year old kids telling me that they've seen every episode. I'm thinking you were four when the show went off the air. You know, what's, my daughter is 27 now, I think. Right. And she's really very you know, politically correct. She grew up in that whole thing and she's very much women's rights. She's educated. She loves the show. Like, she's not offended by the show in the slightest bit. To be honest with you, I think, just like you were saying earlier Period about how, thing? no, how things have turned, there's always an overcorrection when things happen. Now, again, 
I think the country usually progresses in the right direction. Hopefully it'll, hopefully it'll go that way. It's a little unclear right now. It's a little fucked up, but I think there was a, a crazy overcorrection and Entourage did. It took the brunt of a lot of shit from a lot of people. And I know it's come back now because like you said, the amount of negativity that all of Kevin, Kevin, I, Jeremy had had to endure over the last couple of years, it's really taken a nice turn. I think this podcast, which Kevin came up with has really helped that. But uh, you do. You have to have a thick skin. You want to be in this business. Are you going to – I know we talked about possibly doing a, a television version of The Wolf of Wall Street. Sure. A podcast version. Do you want to continue in the Hollywood stuff? Yeah, what's yeah, up? I don't know. I mean, like, listen, I mean, my business is, is, is business. So, I mean, I think I love Hollywood in the sense I think it's fun and great. Who knows? I'd love to make the TV series. There's some issues with the rights still because of Jolo is hiding. <laughs> I, I was thinking that. I mean, the guy, the guy that also, too, that we talked about earlier, Jolo – is on a boat and hiding in international waters Crazy. where he can't get. He's been there for two years. Crazy. It's, it's insane. So that's going to holding things up right there. But hopefully that will resolve itself sooner rather than later. And you uh, wrote two pot, other books. There's yeah, two other yeah. Wolf of Wall Street books. Exactly. So much material to make the, it would be an unbelievable series. And I, I think, though, um, you know, I look at what happened over the last few years with the Me Too is like, first, it's like, it gets to this way. Everybody gets painted with that brush. But then over time, they say, okay, who really were the bad people and who kind of got swept up and made mistakes, but made mistakes that given at the time anyone would understand or that they can learn from and they could still go back and no one wants someone to be locked in jail forever because of things they did. Harvey Weinstein deserves what he got. Others, He's going to die in jail. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and others like did that stuff too. But then there's uh, many other people who, you know, sadly got caught up in hysteria and hopefully those people i think they're starting to make their comebacks i'm seeing it more and more each day i think that's a good thing i would like to see i guess is it would the books the the extra books are they sequels or are they sort of after like where where do those books fall book two is actually like godfather two it's a before and after. Ooh. Yeah, it's written It's written exactly like Godfather 2. I modeled it after Godfather. So it covers what happens after, and it goes it back to the early days. It goes back to I'll the I'll tell you what the brilliant idea is here, Connolly, is the, the audio podcast of this first. I don't know why Action Park Media hasn't fucking swooped in and bought that, <laughs> but uh, you should lock that down. But this was, Jordan, this was awesome. Yeah, this is amazing. And, uh, Next time we're going to talk, I just, you know, one more shout out for Barry Gesser, who is yeah. Jordan and I's very close friend who passed away and we love him and miss him. And we'll get into some great stories because he honestly, I sold Entourage with a story that that happened with Barry and I and Jordan's stories with him were were also very similar. So I love Barry. And I just say, Barry, he's up there laughing and saying, thank God I wasn't alive because I would have been so short GameStop. <laughs> <laughs> he would have had a field day with GameStop. He'd still Barry be arguing. It. He's, but I'm right. But I'm right. Remember that with the Chinese? He's RTIC. I'm no. still, it's right. I'm Wait, right. what was that one stock? The brakes, the Chinese coming, the yeah. brakes. Oh, no. Quigley, quickly. Quig- oh, yeah. Yes. God. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. Just last lesson. And I'm, <laughs> by the way, I know nothing about stocks. I know I've seen friends. When you can't let go, it's like gambling. That's Barry. Take your losses and walk away. But Barry, no. we, we miss him. We yeah. love him. And nobody was better and funnier. And Jordan, <laughs> we're, we're going to have to do this again. You got it. For sure. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much for coming in. My pleasure, guys. And uh, Wow, that was that's great. Okay, yeah. I think we Episode you know, of Victory the podcast well the real question kevin is is are we gonna have an episode that was too intellectually challenging we will see (laughs) we will let the fans decide uh victory the podcast just like you